morning, everyone. And hello to everyone listening via podcast. I'm going to start this morning by telling you about someone named Daniel Barjamin. He's the main character in the 1961 novel, The Bronze Bow. Daniel hates the Romans. His father was killed by the Romans. His sister and his grandmother suffer because of the Roman rule. And he's made it his life's work to overthrow Roman occupation. This book is set in Galilee in the time of Jesus' ministry. It's a great book. I recommend it. Daniel is a young man who is fueled by revenge and desperation. He joins himself with a band of zealots led by the charismatic outlaw named Rosh. And Daniel's convinced that Rosh is the one who will liberate the Jews. And as the story unfolds, you see that Daniel, that his intensity for revenge increases, while at the same time, Jesus begins preaching and teaching in the towns nearby. And murmurs are circulating that maybe this lowly carpenter might be the one who has come to overthrow Roman rule. So you see in the book that people are flocking to Jesus, and he's healing, he's teaching with authority. And Daniel's drawn to him, and, but he still is following this other man, Rosh. So he's struggling because what he thinks that the Jews need is not someone who humbly comes teaching about a new kingdom, but someone who comes with a sword ready to conquer and fight for this new kingdom. So at one point, Daniel speaks to Jesus and he says, I don't understand, Master. I know that you could save all of us if you would. Why will you not lead us? There are so many, hundreds, thousands in Galilee who will only wait for a word. How long must we wait? Daniel saw that Jesus was a leader and he wanted to follow him into war. Daniel wanted help and help came, but it wasn't the help that he was looking for. His hard heart must reconcile itself to accept who Jesus actually was, not who he wanted Jesus to be. And in the end of this book, The Bronze Bow, it's Daniel's heart and expectations that are transformed, not Jesus' mission. So shifting to our passage today, which is Matthew 11, we see that some, like Daniel, were looking for a conqueror. They wanted someone to save them from oppression. Others were looking for someone who was the pinnacle of law-abiding religiosity. The Jesus that actually came was much different than anyone expected. So looking at chapter 11, we're going to read uh, just the first few verses to start, verses 1 to 3. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? We'll stop there. So we see Jesus shifting focus in this chapter. Last week, he was giving instructions to his disciples as they went out on their mission. And this week, he is now turning towards his own mission of teaching and preaching. So there's a shift in in the book of Matthew. And as we'll see over the next few chapters, his teaching and preaching become like this laser beam pointing right at the hearts of those who reject him. And... He, his laser-like rebukes, they cut into the heart of the, the Pharisees and the Jews who are prideful and don't want to accept him. And I think it's still targeted at the hearts of readers today. He's trying to pinpoint something. 
But before Jesus pulls out his laser beam, someone else steps on the scene, and that's the disciples of John the Baptist. And if you remember back in chapter 4, a long time ago, John was, uh, he was imprisoned. The Bible doesn't say how long it's been since he was imprisoned or how long he's been there, what the conditions are like. We don't know. But we do know that soon the Bible will say he'll be beheaded. So he never leaves prison. So from behind prison bars, John sends his disciples with an unexpected question. Are you the one to come or shall we look for another? This is kind of crazy. John the Baptist is not even sure if Jesus is the promised Messiah. How is this possible? Well, to show you how shocking this is, let's go on a quick stroll down memory lane. We're going to go 30 years earlier. So we'll remember that, number one, John was Jesus' cousin. So when pregnant Mary visited pregnant Elizabeth, unborn baby John recognized unborn baby Jesus, and he leapt in Elizabeth's womb. It's pretty amazing. Two, John lived this entirely set-apart life. He wore camel skins. He ate bugs. He lived in the wilderness. All of these things were not normal to anyone then. And his only purpose was to get people ready for the Messiah to come. That was his, that was his job. And the third thing, most amazingly, is that as he was preaching, Jesus came to him to be baptized. So as he was holding Jesus in his arms, bringing him up out of the water... The heavens open, the spirit comes down like a dove, and he hears the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. So we could say that if any human alive had confirmation that Jesus was the promised one, it would be John. So it's pretty odd that John's doubting. And the Bible doesn't say what's perpetuating John's doubt. Perhaps it's his circumstance was the influence. He was in prison. Or maybe something made him want to just make sure that being in prison was worth it all. In verse 2, it says John heard about the deeds of Christ. And this is what spurred on his question. So it could be possible that he heard about Jesus' miracles and teachings. But this felt incongruent with John's current state of imprisonment. Or perhaps John thought the company Jesus kept and the message he was teaching didn't quite line up with John's earlier bolder message of repentance. Maybe it was confusing to him. We don't know. So John asked the question, is Jesus, is he who he says he is? Or shall I look for someone else? And maybe he's wondering, did I get it all wrong? How could this be the prophet's reward that Jesus was just talking about? Now, I haven't seen Jesus, and I know you haven't either. But I doubt, and I know you, I'm assuming you probably do too, because you're human. And I wonder if Matthew's readers were also huddled in a house, pouring over this letter, sharing similar doubts as John. And we've all heard about Jesus, and most of us, or all of us, I don't know, believe. But I know sometimes our present circumstances make us falter just a bit. And we might think, is this what Jesus intended? Can he be trusted with all things? I find comfort personally in the fact that John the Baptist was confused and that he just wanted to make sure. It shows us his humanity. And it also reminds me that I can take my doubts straight to Jesus to find answers, just like he did. So let's see how Jesus responds to this doubt. Let's read 4 through 6. And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus kind of gives John his resume. He says all these deeds, which John already has heard of, you know, blind are now seen, the lame are walking, lepers are cleansed, the deaf can hear, the dead are alive, poor have the good news preached to him. This is a pretty good resume for being the Messiah. And we've already learned about a lot of these deeds and other, that more, more is to come and other gospels record more. But the key that's here that Jesus does is he's making this connection from one prophet to another. So he's quoting John here, or it's a compilation of quotes. Sorry, he's quoting Isaiah here. It's a compilation of prophecies from Isaiah. And he's making a connection from Isaiah to John. And these are all prophecies from Isaiah 26, 29, 35, and 61 kind of mashed together. And Jesus, we see Jesus is responding to John's doubt with certainty. The prophets of old, they were the truth tellers to the people of Jesus' day, and they, the people looked to these prophets. So John was banking his whole life on what the prophets had said. And Jesus is saying, the prophets point to me, don't look for another. It's like when you have been on a boat that's turbulent, and you step off, and you feel the hard ground beneath your feet. The ground is the thing that's fixed and it's not going to move. It steadies shaky needs. And that's what Jesus is doing here. The dependability of God's word, it should steady doubting hearts. Because what are our doubts in God often based on? They're based on our feelings, hard circumstances, lack of understanding. So the remedy is the immovable word of God. So we need to look to it and read it. And we need to reread and reread the promises of God, and we have to remember them and believe them. That's what Jesus is doing here. And then in verse 6, he ends his words to John's disciples with this gentle rebuke. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's a kind reminder to someone he loves. Guard yourself from becoming hardened. And what's interesting is that Isaiah the prophet, this is what he said a lot to the people of Israel. He warned a lot against hardness. And in Roman nine, Romans 9, it says Israel did not pursue righteousness by faith, but rather they saw Jesus as a stumbling stone, and they stumbled over him. They were offended. So instead of a stone in which they could find sure footing, they just stumbled over him like a bothersome rock in the way, and they just kept looking ahead to someone else. But Jesus is saying, do not respond to me with offense, but rather with faith. So Jesus meets John's doubts and ours, with a gentleness that's rooted in truth. Do not look for another. I'm here, he says. And we've seen John's doubts and Jesus' response now, but now we're going to look at the main body of our chapter, which talks about rejection, people who reject Jesus, and how Jesus responds. And he responds in three ways, with two rebukes and an invitation. So let's look at verses 7 to 15 at the first rebuke. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. 
This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus shifts from talking to John's disciples, and now he addresses people who refuse to believe in John's mission and ultimately refuse to believe in Jesus. So rebuke number one, his subject is all about John, this jailed prophet. And to the crowds, he starts by telling them what a true prophet is like. He says it's not like some flimsy ear tickler blown around by popular opinion like a reed in the wind. And it's not like some aloof king lounging in posh robes in a palace. Actually, John was concerned not with his own well-being or his own self-indulgence. His mission was singular, prepare the way for Jesus. And it was a job given to him hundreds of years before, in Mal- like Malachi, um, which is mentioned in verse, what is that, 10. Yeah, 10. Malachi is prophesying. So yet again, he brings in another prophet to um, stand in as witness to who John is. And then he says in verse 11, he makes a startling claim, no one that has ever lived, no human that has ever lived is greater than John. So Jesus is giving this tiny little hint of the nature of his kingdom. It will be filled with people who are even greater than John the Baptist. That's what he says next. So that's me and that's you and anyone who calls on Jesus as their savior. So as great as Jesus or as John was, all of the lowly, um, humble kingdom dwellers that follow after him are going to be greater than John. So that's a big turn of events as Jesus preaches there. And in this praise of John, there's a rebuke to the crowds. He, he says to them, you wanted to see what you wanted to see, not was what was truly there. They were looking for another. They were looking for a different kind of prophet. And Jesus rebukes the refusal to believe in John. And then again, he brings up Elijah to call. He calls on him for support of his argument. And verses 12 to 15, he talks about violent oppression of the kingdom. These are really confusing verses that a lot of commentators don't understand, so I won't get into them. But basically, he's talking about how all the violence that was done in the past to prophets is now here with John the Baptist. And um, there is opposition to the kingdom that is strong and forceful. Jesus ends this part by making appeal to his listen, an appeal to his listeners. He says, if you are willing to accept it, and then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus wants people to come to him, so he wants people to understand and accept. But he knows their hearts well, which is why he then compares their generation to some of the most fickle, self-centered, demanding members of society, children. So let's read verses 16 to 19 and see what he has to say about that. He says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. 
For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So, I love children, so I'm not trying to disparage them. And we know that Jesus loved children, too. But if you have kids, or if you are around kids, you know that they are literally the most self-centered, fickle, and demanding members of society. And, for example, you just need to make them lunch, and you'll see. It might go like this. I want a sandwich, but it has to be cut a certain way, and the peanut butter has to be 1 16th inches thick. And now the sandwich needs to be ham and cheese, not peanut butter. Why'd you bring me a peanut butter sandwich? And also, I want apple juice, but only served ice cold, but not with ice. But actually, I wanted milk, and I'm now going to throw a fit at your complete incompetence. (laughs) Or, as one mom aptly stated in a post I recently saw online, people complain about their children all the time, but mine are pretty easy as long as we're doing exactly what they want to be doing every second of every day. So like whiny children, Jesus compares this generation to them. He's saying, this generation wanted to call the shots, and they changed the shots at whim depending on their ever-changing appetites and opinions. So we see they demanded one thing. Cannot John be less self-righteous in his eating habits? But then when Jesus comes, they demand another. Cannot Jesus be more righteous in his eating habits and his choice of guests? They complain no matter what. Why? because they wanted to find fault with Jesus and John. If they didn't find fault, they'd have to embrace the message of repentance. So this rebuke reveals a heart that will not be satisfied in who Jesus is, because they actually do not want to be satisfied in who Jesus is. Jesus' deeds and John's deeds, they point to a true and lasting kingdom, but it's a kingdom that looked differently than the people expected, like we've already talked about. So their fickle hearts could not accept a Messiah who did not fit into their personal mold. What it boils down to is their first-hand knowledge of Jesus wasn't met with faith. And this rebuke should cut to our hearts, too. What do we expect of Jesus? Are there parts of who he is, what he's about, or how he says we should live that we don't want to accept? Do we find ourselves unsatisfied with Jesus, finding fault with the circumstances he's given us? unwilling to obey the hard commands, belly aching about the world around us and the way we see God work or not working? Do we want to find fault? Because we know it's easier to point fingers at Jesus than to look at our own whiny hearts. Commentator Douglas O'Donnell wrote this, quote, we want God to scribble signs with the stars when he has plainly given his word in scripture and his word in the flesh in his son. What spoiled children we are, end quote. So we should be warned by this. It's thinking that leads to hardness of heart, and ultimately it leads people to turn away from Jesus. So next, Jesus gives rebuke number two. Let's read 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So this rebuke is a scathing one. Jesus outright calls rejection what it is. It's the road to hell. He denounces Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. These are all Jewish cities, all where his most mighty works have been done. A common hindrance I hear, and maybe you've heard this from unbelievers, is if Jesus were only here now, everyone would believe in him. Why doesn't Jesus just show up and do lots of miracles? I would believe in him. People crave tangible proof, and they want to know that Jesus actually is who he says he is. Like doubting Thomas, they want to find certainty in physical data. But these towns have the data. They rejected what the data revealed. The Savior of the Jews, he came for the lost sheep of Israel, and they didn't want him. Their sin was unbelief. And the rejection is met with judgment, harsh judgment. They would meet a greater judgment, actually, than the vulgar, wicked cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Now, Tyre and Sidon are Gentile nations that had a history of corrupt, godless deeds, and it led to condemnation by Isaiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And Sodom, you might be more familiar with that, was one of the towns destroyed by fire from the sky by its wickedness at the time of Abraham. So Jesus compares these Israeli, these towns, these Jewish towns, their sin of just unbelief to the sins of these gross, evil, twisted deeds of these pagan nations. Jesus takes sin, the sin of unbelief, really seriously. Because we know Jesus loved the Jews. He was the promised Messiah to them, and he wanted to make an eternal kingdom for them. Yet their hearts were so hardened that he says these pagan nations, they would have responded differently. So unrepentance, it really is the truest matter of life and death. Do you have a friend who always says what's on her mind, which is usually what everyone else is thinking but everyone's unwilling to say? She says it even if it's awkward or embarrassing, and no one quite knows what to say after she spurts it out. Do we laugh it off? Are we glad it's out in the open? Do we excuse ourselves quietly and then cry or stew in anger because of what this friend rashly said? Well, Jesus says some pretty harsh stuff, and the thing is, they're true. They're hard to hear. His words are unsettling. They make us uncomfortable. They make defenses go up, and they actually have the potential to harden hearts. And maybe it's this aspect of Jesus that is hard for you to accept. It's repentance or it's not. There's no in-between zone with Jesus, and he tells us that really clearly. So the hard question remains out in the open, who will believe and who will remain on the road to hell? I know we all have family members and friends and neighbors that we love. And even we see strangers around and there, become, there can be this burden of, we want these people to know Jesus. Will they know him? Will they believe? Or will they face eternity apart from him? Or perhaps you yourself are thinking, I am so far from the kingdom of God. 
How can I ever believe in a God I can't see or touch? The load of unbelief might feel like a burden on your shoulders. Well, our final section will be a help to all of us as we consider Jesus's unsettling words. His, the, next, the next section is written to the doubting, the rejecting, the Christian, the unbeliever, and it brings light to this burdensome question of who will believe. So let's read the, uh, read the last section together. So in 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus gives two truths that are important for us to learn. The first truth is he declares, I reveal myself to whom I choose. The second truth he gives, it's an invitation. Come to me and I'll give you rest. These truths should give us stability in a rocky world in this way. They show us that the burden of salvation and the burdens of this world, they're not ours to carry. The Father, who is the sustainer of life, the one who keeps the sun in the sky and the ocean waters contained, and the one who puts breath in our lungs, he's the one who knows who will receive him and who will reject him. And the Father has handed this knowledge over to the Son. The Father is the way to the Son. And the Son, who knew firsthand the sacrifice it would take to bring salvation, he's the one who reveals it to you and I. So the Son is the way to the Father. The wise and understanding that he mentions, or to put it differently, because he's speaking cheekily, those who think they are wise and understanding, or the proud, they will not be able to find the treasure of Jesus' kingdom on their own. It's hidden from them. But the childlike, those who are humble and lowly, their eyes will be opened to the truth by Jesus. So all of this is out of our control. It's in the hands of Jesus. And think of this. Jesus prayed this prayer of thanksgiving out loud in the hearing of the crowds, and he didn't need to do that. But he did it so that they may know the truth and think and not think that salvation comes by any other way or by any other Messiah. So this is the good news proclaimed to the poor that John was talking about and Jesus was talking about. <clears throat> and it's proclaimed to all of us now. It's that Jesus chooses to reveal himself. And... We can do nothing on our own to relieve our burden of sin. It's good news that there is someone who can. And the second truth is like a deep, refreshing drink of cold water on a hot day. Jesus gives the invitation, all can come to me to find relief and rest. I love this section of the Bible. Come, Jesus says. Who? Who? All who labor and are heavy laden with the burden of their own sin and the burdens of this sinful world, because those are many. So this invitation is for all of us. Have you sought ways to relieve your heavy burden on your own and haven't found any? 
this invitation's for you. Are you laboring? Are you tired? Are the things of this world suffocatingly hard for you right now? This invitation's for you. Come, Jesus says, why? He says, I will give you rest. Isn't this what we long for? Rest is one of the basic human needs that we physically need. But it's also something you can see the world longing for in their souls. We want peace with God. Have you found peace with God? Do you have the hope of present peace and eternal rest? Do you know the hope coming of eternal rest, but you actually don't or refuse Jesus' offer for present today rest and help carrying your burdens? Come, Jesus says. How? Ironically, he says, take my yoke upon you. We're to take a yoke like the one that sits on the shoulders of oxen as they plow. We're to bind ourselves to Jesus like this. One commentator stated that Jesus could have said something like, take my bed upon you or my couch upon you. Doesn't that give us more rest? But he said yoke. His beloved find rest in laboring with him, not in the absence of work. We actually will find greater rest in pursuing his ways than our own. And we'll see that this isn't a heavy load. Come, Jesus says, how? You learn from me, I'll show you. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, he says. And we are not people who are naturally gentle and lowly. And the crowds weren't either. And here's the very heart of Jesus. He says, this is my heart. This is yet another hint into the kingdom of God. The Messiah, the one who saves, he does so with sacrifice and justice and with harsh words, but he does it with gentleness and invitation. He wants us to join him. His low, humble heart meets us in our low, humble estate. And then finally in verse 30, he wraps it up by saying, we will find rest for our souls here. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. What he offers is nothing like what anyone else can offer you. So he invites his listeners to come and he invites us to come. What is paradoxical here is that Jesus had just said, we will only know God if Jesus chooses it. But now he's saying we have the choice to come to him and take his yoke upon us. There is throughout scripture a defense for both divine initiative and salvation as well as human response. They're both there. You can't write it away. And it's a mystery. It's hard to understand. But it calls us to remember God's gracious will and salvation and our call to come and our command to obey that call. So when we see unrepentance and grief or an unbelief in this world, we can trust God's plan and we can obey his word. This is what should give us sure footing in a tumultuous world. And as I close today, I want to spur us all on to go to Jesus. Because in this present day, there are many things vying for our attention. What will satisfy us? What God will meet our finicky needs? Shall we look for another? No, we must not be slaves to pride, thinking that we'll recognize the Messiah we want when we see him. But instead, we're just stumbling on Jesus, offended and looking ahead for someone else. Rather, we're called to see the Messiah who came to give truth to the doubting and rest to the lowly.
That's who we need to accept. So, like Jesus said, we all need to come to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a gentle and lowly Savior because we are lowly people who need you. So help us, Lord, to not be full of pride and to not be full of fear, but to look to you and come to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today.